listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. I loved reading when I was a kid. One of the great things about, about the books I read back then was the predictably happy endings. Sometimes hard things happen along the way, but the central plot line always resolves in a positive and satisfying way. The story may be rags to riches, the quest, journey and return, or just plain comedy, but never tragedy. Nancy Drew always solves the mystery. Anne Shirley always ends up with Gilbert Blythe. Elizabeth Bennet always marries Mr. Darcy. I mean, what kind of a book would it be if she ended up with Mr. Wickham? Even though it was more than 50 years ago, I still vividly remember the first book I read that entered the wrong way. I felt cheated. It was clearly a mistake. I checked the book to see if the last pages where the error got corrected had been torn out by someone. But no, no pages had been torn out. It just ended the wrong way. Psalm 73 is a psalm by Asaph, and he's writing about a world where the wrong guys are the ones who are always winning. He observes that it's the wicked who routinely find success and fame. He sees that they are sleek, affluent, healthy, and smug. He says, these fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. Asaph used to think that health and wealth were the rewards that were given for godly living. But instead it seems that the best way to achieve them is to be cruel, heartless, and entirely self-serving. How does Asaph respond to that observation? Well, his first reaction is to be disillusioned. Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Quite the contrast between his life and that of the fat cat's. I find it interesting that this psalm was written by Asaph. We don't know a lot about him. There was an Asaph of the priestly tribe in Israel at one point who was appointed as worship leader, and this may be him. About a dozen of the 150 psalms in our Bibles are attributed to him. Of course, many more of the psalms are attributed to David. We know a lot more of David's story And reading his psalms, we have a better sense of his temperament. Based on that, I'd be happy to speculate about where David might go next if this were one of his psalms. He'd probably pick the nuclear option. He'd beg God to smite them, to humiliate them, to make a spectacle of them, to wipe the floor with them. 
He'd point out that unless God does something to correct this gross injustice in society, then God's reputation will suffer. Perhaps this is not surprising. After all, David was a warrior king. He had spent years on the battlefield. It seemed that for him, the only good enemy was a dead one, or at least a deeply humiliated one. But Asaph if he was the Asaph mentioned in the history books of the Hebrew scriptures, was from a different background. He was a priest and a poet. And perhaps because of that, the prayer he offers when confronted by those arrogant fat cats goes in a different direction than David's might have. Asaph first says that he was confused, that trying to sort out why the wicked prosper just gave him a splitting headache. But instead of urging God to fix things in the way that he, Asaph, in his infinite wisdom, thought that they should be fixed, he goes quiet. He waits on God in the temple. And in that quiet place, in the presence of God, and with an open heart, he starts to get a different perspective. His first insight is that the success of the wicked is transitory. He says, Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. But if that was the only insight that Asaph got, it would have felt like the point was, that we need to just put up with crap in the here and now, because eventually, in the end, God will bring justice punishing the wicked and rewarding the godly. A sort of pie-in-the-sky-in-the-sweet-by-and-by faith. But that isn't where Asaph stops. In Asaph's time of contemplation in the temple, he not only gains insights into the transitory or even illusory nature of material success, he finds something better. In that quiet moment, that moment of self-awareness, he says to God, Then I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you and you hold my right hand. Wow, that's some serious self-awareness. Asaph recognizes that at the root he's not fussed about the prosperity of the wicked because of some objective ideal of justice, or because God's honor might be besmirched. He's bitter because they have the good life that he thinks he wants. And from that bitterness... He could have responded in the way I imagine David responding, calling down wrath on them. I'm sure it was tempting. Just think of it, the schadenfreude of seeing the wicked cut down and then taking over their spot at the top of the pile. But with the perspective he gains in the temple, he realizes that would not be the best way forward. He sees that God is offering him a different kind of joy. He says to God, Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Asaph may not have the wealth and status of the fat cats, but he has something far more valuable. He has the loving and guiding presence of God in his life. Not in a future heavenly realm, but in the here and now. Aaron mentioned last week that we were doing a series on prayer, and given that, you may be wondering if I've somehow lost the plot. My kids not infrequently wonder that about me. But for me, this psalm is all about prayer. What prayer is really about, what prayer is really for. I used to think that prayer was the work that we had to do to get God to do what the world needed. That by piling up prayers for some tragic situation in the world, I could change the trajectory of it. That God was limited in action until I poured out my heart in convincing concern for some problem, whether distant or local. That by some sort of spiritual alchemy, my prayers released God to do good in the world, the good that I saw was needed. And in my personal life, I thought that prayer was the way to get God to give me the things I needed and wanted. One of my favorite verses was Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It was clear to me what my heart desired, usually a date with some guy I had a crush on. So what I needed to do was somehow convince God that I was delighting in him, so that then he would have to give me what I wanted. Uh, apparently, my view of God was not only that he was a white-bearded old guy in the sky, he was a bit dim, and it was easy to pull the wool over his eyes. I'm going to stop at this point and confess to you that there's still lots about prayer that I don't understand. But one thing I do know is that my role in prayer is not trying to cajole God into doing something God doesn't want to do. The purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what I think God ought to do. The purpose of prayer is to change me. I'm going to say that again. The purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what I think God ought to do. The purpose of prayer is to change me, to form me in the ways of Jesus' kingdom. What Asaph may have wanted was for God to smite the wicked and give him the keys to their house and cars. But instead of imploring God to rubber stamp and implement that clever plan, he comes into God's presence and waits. And, as he does that, God doesn't gratify those desires, desires that were based on his limited understanding. God changes his desires causing Asaph to long for and value the good things that God wants to give him. At the end of his prayer, Asaph can truly say, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? For many of us, that silent waiting and listening may not be the place where prayer starts. I may need to vent my emotions about my circumstances, and what I think God ought to do about them. That's what David did in the Psalms where he called down vengeance on his enemies. And, 
As Aaron pointed out last week, often by the end of his psalms, David has prayed himself into a better place. It's what Jesus did on the brink of his crucifixion when he questioned whether there might not be another option, a less painful way to accomplish God's plan. But he ends with, not my will, but thine. Pouring out those emotions is healthy, and God can take it. We can bash against God all day long, and God will still love us. But that's not the destination. That can't be the end of prayer. That's not the goal. The goal isn't to get God to implement my plan. It's to change my heart so that I align with God's plan. Jesus taught about prayer in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records it in chapter 6 of his biography. Jesus tells his disciples not to make a big show of how they pray in an attempt to impress people, and not to make long, wordy prayers in an attempt to impress God. He gives them the model prayer we know as the Lord's Prayer. He then turns to talking about our tendency to be anxious about stuff. He says, So don't worry away with your what'll we eat and what'll we drink and what'll we wear. Those are all the kinds of things the Gentiles fuss about and your heavenly father knows you need them all. Instead, make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life and all these things will be given to you as well. If you're anxious about how you're going to pay for some unexpected car repairs, by all means, pray about it. But don't think you're giving God news. God knows what you need. And when your mind is settled enough that you can focus on something else, pray in ways that bring God's kingdom and God's way of life. Some of you will have heard that verse for years. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let me try to make that really practical. Instead of praying that God will punish and get rid of the person who is making your life miserable at work, pray that you can learn how to love them, and you'll bring the kingdom by loving your enemy. Instead of praying for more, pray that you'll be content with what you have and be grateful, and you'll bring the kingdom by being poor in spirit. Instead of praying that God will change your spouse, Pray for grace to love them the way they are, and you will bring the kingdom by being merciful. For me, this hasn't been a quick process. Maybe I'm a tough nut. But as I pray loving prayers over weeks and months and years for the people I find difficult, my heart is changed, and I find them easier and easier to love. And I think that there's something else I can learn from Asaph. And that's the value of being silent and waiting on God. Certainly my prayers in the past have been far too wordy. Jesus warned about those kinds of prayers. He said, when you pray, do not babble repetitiously like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. I may tend to fill up the air in my prayer time with words, my thoughts, my anxieties, but it's hard to see how that kind of prayer is going to change me. If I insist on hanging on to the reins of the narrative, I will come out of the prayer thinking much the same way as I went in. 
Awaiting silently like Asaph gives space for me to hear God. Sadly, on most days, my brain is like a hamster on steroids scurrying around his wheel, and so it's a discipline that I'm still learning. I've also been really helped by praying scripture and using liturgy. For example, praying the prayer of St. Francis, if I'm paying attention, seldom leaves me unchallenged. Grant that I may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. I'm going to close with another bit of liturgy, a prayer from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Let's pray. O Almighty God, you are the only one who can bring into order the unruly wills and desires of your sinful people. Please give us this, that we come to love the things that you command and desire the things that you promise, so that among the random and complex changes of this world, our hearts may be firmly fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.